We are continuing in our series in the book of Nehemiah called Blood, Sweat, and Tears as we look to what it looks like to be on God's mission, the mission that he's called each one of us to. And one of the things that we're going to look at today is what it looks like to be a part of the story that God has called us to be a part of. And my question for you is this, what's your story? What story are you a part of? What, as you think about your life, what is the narrative that's going on that's dictating how you behave, how you think, how you respond? What's your story? Or to put it another way, what story are you a part of? All of us are a part of some story. We all filter the world through a specific lens. We all see the world and our lives in a particular way. We are, in uh, in a sense, we are all understanding our lives in the context of a story. So what's your story? Whose story are you a part of? You might find that the way that you answer these questions would help give you a sense of the story that you're a part of. So uh, these are some popular questions. Who am I? Why am I here? What's wrong with the world? How do we fix it? Have you ever asked those questions? Who am I? Why am I here? What is it that's wrong with all of these other people? (laughs) Welcome to church. With all of these people, right? What's wrong with the world? And how do we fix it? The answers to those questions, your answers to those questions, stem from the story that you, that you understand yourself to be a part of. What's your story? There are many different types of stories. In fact, in our world today, in our culture today, we have so many different competing stories or worldviews. And here are maybe just some that you might consider or are considering, or maybe some of you, uh, especially if you're here just trying to trigger, figure this whole Jesus thing out, maybe you're kind of of one of these worldviews. And I'm so glad you're here. But there are some of us who the story that we are a part of, the story that we're telling ourselves is what some might call cafeteria spiritualism. It's a technical word. Cafeteria spiritualism, which basically says, you know, that there's this whole spiritual world out there with all of these different ideas. And, uh, and we are physical beings. We're also spiritual beings. And so uh, for me, I'm just going to kind of go through the cafeteria of spiritual ideas and select ones I like and select ones I don't like and, and take in the ones I like and, and, and refuse the ones I don't like. And, and basically, one of the ways that we hear this come out in normal conversation is, hey, you know what? It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe it sincerely as if sincerity is the highest form of truth. It doesn't matter what you believe. I mean, every religion's got some of the truth, but not all the truth. It doesn't matter what you believe, as long as you believe it sincerely. And so go to the cafeteria, adopt in whichever views you like, and uh, help yourself. You know, feast upon this beautiful meal that you have. Just do it sincerely. But of course, we never apply that line of reasoning to physical realities. Well, it doesn't matter whether or not you believe knives are sharp. Whatever you believe is true for you and true for me. And so feel free to stab yourself in the leg as long as you believe sincerely that it will not hurt, it will not hurt. Hmm. Uh, There's uh, another view and another story, and this is a a story that's uh, very uh, popular uh, now. Uh, For some of us, it might be called the American dream story. Uh, that my life is about uh, attaining a certain level of status when I get the two-story house and the 2.3 kids and the 0.75 dog and the two cars. By the way, that's a poodle. Um, 
It's not a full dog. It's just a .75 dog. And, uh, and, 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 you know, a nice, uh, nice easy-to-do mortgage, maybe some toys. It's the American dream, right? Uh, it's life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness applied to consumerism. Uh, and so we walk around the world saying, you know, um, just as ca- cafeteria spiritualism says, I'm the center of the story, and so I'm going to take from all these other stories and build my own story, uh, so too the American dreamism or the get rich or die, uh, die tryingism, it's also a technical term, uh, that ism is saying, I'm the center of the universe and I need to maintain a certain, uh, I need to attain a certain status of wealth or influence. Uh, that is the story and so that's what I'm fighting for. Uh, no, uh, third, uh, there's what is more technically called secular humanism. It's this idea that the spiritual world uh, ain't got nothing for us. There really isn't a spiritual world. There's no, religion is stupid or, or at least uh, ill-founded. And what is real is logic and reason. And so we have uh, ethics and morality built out of logic and reason, not uh, some higher voice or some higher law. And of course, this understanding of the world would posit that by and large, uh, the, the idea is that you and I are the products of random chance. Two, uh, long ago, millions of years ago, two atoms accidentally smashed together, and now you're here. Happy birthday. Right? Um, that, that, that because of random chance, a bunch of sacks of chemicals uh, developed, and you and I are nothing more than sacks of chemicals. And, and if you're of that opinion, that, that there's nothing in the world that's spiritual, that there is no higher uh, truth or higher knowledge outside of what we can test and what we can engage with with the scientific method, I do just want to push a little bit and ask how far are you willing to go down that path? Um, what I mean is this, is do you ever get upset when people treat other people like sacks of chemicals? Have you ever used the word injustice? If you say that's an injustice or there's a lack of justice here because you watch a strong person beating up on a weak person or a strong nation eating a weak nation or those in power uh, consuming those who are weak and taking advantage of those who are weak and you say that's unjust, where is it in your sacks of chemical line of thinking that would mean that, would mean that I can't treat the weaker as weaker? If you use in words like injustice, you, you might be borrowing from some of the spiritualists or some of those other religions that have things like a higher law or a higher moral code. Uh, finally, there's uh, nihilism, which is basically uh, the flip side of secular humanism that says, you and I are nothing more than a sack of chemicals. I'm the center of the universe, and I am meaningless. So let's listen to Radiohead, um, which is a depressing, come on, it's Radiohead's depressing. Can we all just agree? Anybody Radiohead fan? Like, they make you happy? No, Radiohead, Seth, no. Radiohead does not make one person, does not make people happy. Uh, it's just, it's like vegetables. It's just grueling to get through. Uh, they're, 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 they're wonderful. They're wonderful people. Uh, so you, those stories, if you find yourself in one of those stories, and that's the story of your life, the story that you find yourself in, that will dictate your response to things, that'll dictate how you behave, how you think, how you respond, it'll, it'll, it'll influence what you find to be joyful, it'll influence what you complain about, it'll influence what you rebel against, it'll influence how you receive different data, it'll influence how you treat other people. The story that you are a part of will influence your life. So the story that you're a part of matters. Jesus tells us that the story that he's a part of is that we are not the center of the universe. Rather, he is the center of the universe. And that's far from being condemning and fearful. That's freeing. 
Uh, let me just push on that a little bit before we get to Nehemiah. You see, if you and I are the center of the universe and the whole story is about us, which is our default, isn't it? I mean, you don't have to train kids to be selfish. Our default is to make the whole world about us. Isn't that, is that right? right? You guys get back at me, come on. Yeah, I mean, you guys, it just, if you don't believe in the depravity of humanity, just hang out with kids. Okay? Parents, this is when you just quietly, if your children are in the room, you're just like, mm, mm-hmm, right? Like, I'm a, like when I'm around my kids, and I love my kids most days, but I, my kids just love them, but then they'll just be like, I never trained my son to deceive my daughter so that he could gain some sort of social standing with his little sphere of influence. Never trained him that. I might have modeled that behavior to him, and so maybe subconsciously I have trained him, but I never sat him down and said, hey, the way to resolve conflict is to lie and deceive, so go for it. You don't, right? Our default is we're the center of the story, right? And how's that working out for you? Are you fulfilled? I mean, is, does that, are you, do you just walk around the world singing like I'm part of something that's not just going to terminate with my own life, right? Uh, if you were to think just a little bit more deeply about how disconnected our day-to-day actions are from our actual beliefs and the things that really do give us joy, it might take a moment, you might take a moment to think, what story am I acting like I'm a part of? And there are many of us who believe a certain way, but if you just look at the Monday through Saturday business, would others say that you're a part of that story? What story are you a part of? What's, what's your story? Because the story that you find yourself in will dictate your life. Jesus says, you are not the center of the universe. You don't get just to pick and choose. Rather, I'm the center of you, namely Jesus, and you're part of my story. And that's freeing, and I hope to convince you of that today. And I did just want to say real quick that there are, there's this other little, there's this sneaky little story that's kind of out there uh, disguising itself as Christianity, and I did want to address it just real quick. Um, there is this, uh, especially in our culture, there's this sneaky little worldview, there's this sneaky little story that goes like this, that Christianity, that what Jesus wants is for you to be good little boys and girls, and if you do enough good things, then God will owe you heaven, or God will love you, or whatever it is, Right? And so uh, there are many in our culture, there are many in our city, there are many people in our lives that are walking around saying things like, yeah, I'm a Christian because I attend a Christian church, but in their heart of hearts, what's operating in their hearts is not the grace of Jesus Christ, but what some might call legalism or Phariseeism or whatever you want to call it. Basically, that I'm doing enough good, therefore God will owe me or God will love me. And so that's what it means to be a Christian. And let me just tell you right now, that ain't what it means to be a Christian. Let me give you something to think about. This whole good enough nonsense, right? Like you can be good enough to earn God's favor. Are you ready to, you ready to get down? We're going to get down. You go to your neighbor's house and you knock on the door. Knock, knock, knock. This is totally weird because you're a Phoenician, but let's just play with it, right? You go to your neighbor's house. I know you don't know their name. You go to your neighbor's house, you knock on their door and you're like, hey, neighbor, if you were to die tonight or right now, welcome to Phoenix. If you die tonight, right? Would you go to heaven or hell? What are they going to say? Heaven, right? Heaven, right? Unless they listen to Radiohead. Heaven. (laughs) Why? Because I'm a good 
person. I'm a good person. Great. I'm glad you're a good person. You think that you're going to get to heaven because you're a good person. Great. Awesome. So let's imagine that there's a thermometer. Me, 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 me. You all see the thermometer? Yeah, this is the morality, good person thermometer. And at the top, you've got like the best person that's ever lived. You got Mother Teresa at the top, right? What do we got? We got Mother Teresa, like, like anybody? I mean, Mother Teresa, there she is, boom, right? Good person, right? Because it's a good person. You say you're a good person, so you're gonna go to heaven. And then at the bottom, what do we got? We got Mussolini. We got Hitler. What do we got? Yeah, Charles Manson. Yeah, that's good, right? Uh, okay, so that's uh, so. So we've got our morality scale. Garth Brooks, of course, down at the bottom. We've got our morality scale, and and we say, great, you're a good person. You're going to get into heaven because you're a good person. I would like to get into heaven, and I'd like for God to love me. I need to be a good person. Where's the line? Where's the good person cut off? Like, how good enough do I need to be? Well. <laughs> Friends, certainly it's not Mother Teresa. I mean, it's, come on, let's put it, maybe let's put it right in the middle. Huh? I mean, not too good. You know, you want to be fun at parties, but certainly not uh, Charles Manson. Okay, so there we are. So where's the cutoff? Oh, right here, right? Usually it's just below where I think I am. Right, I think I'm here, so definitely the line is just a little bit below me. Okay, that's awesome. So uh, who gets to decide? What cosmic uh, king and judge has decided that that's the threshold? Well, if you're the center of your story and you believe in moralism, even under the guise of Christianity, you're deciding it. And I can almost guarantee that it basically comes down like this. Well, I'm certainly not as bad as somebody else, right? Like the Raiders fans, I'm not that bad. Not that bad. So certainly, by comparison, God would have to let me in because I'm not that bad. I'm a good person. And here's the jam. Jesus comes, up, and Jesus comes on the scene. And he is like, guess what? Mother Teresa, she ain't even on the top. It's Jesus. And that's the threshold. Righteousness. And I, don't, I still haven't met a person who would say that they have attained the righteousness of Jesus. And so we have a real big problem here. Because if being good enough is what gets me in right relationship with God, I have no chance because Jesus is the standard, right? Not the neighbor next door or the idiot I knew from school. That's not the threshold. The threshold is righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. Okay, so now we're talking. And how you navigate the world will be dictated by that story. It'll impact how you sleep at night. Because quite frankly, if I fundamentally believed that I had to be good enough in the eyes of God by doing enough good works, I would not sleep well. There would be no peace, would there? Nehemiah helps bring us home. Nehemiah has been a part of a building project, and we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 6 and on. Nehemiah shows us how a people group, actually a whole group of people, realign their, their sense, their understanding, to be a, that they are a part of God's story rather than their own story. What we see here in Nehemiah 9 is a realignment, a re-understanding that I'm a part of something bigger than myself. Here we go. This is Nehemiah 9, 6 through uh, 10, and we'll have it up on the screen as well. This is now their response after they have rebuilt the city of Jerusalem. They say, you are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven and heaven, the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve them all. And the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram 
and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. You guys didn't think I could do that, did you? And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. This is the word of the Lord. What you have here is Nehemiah finishing this good work and Nehemiah's people finishing this good work by rebuilding the city of Jerusalem. They were in captivity. They were uh, in exile. Many of them came back, as you saw in the video. And here they've finished the work, but they have rediscovered something. They rediscovered some scriptures. And so they begin to re-engage with God's story through the scriptures. And this is their confession back to God. What we read was just a piece of their confession as a corporate prayer back to God, saying back to God who they were, who God was, and what God had done to bring them to that point. They recognized that they were a part of a story that was outside of themselves, that they were, now check this out, they recognized that they were bit players forgettable players in a magnificent, cosmic, global story, as opposed to the star player in a meaningless, relatively insignificant, tired, old story. Whose story are you a part of? Would you rather be the superstar of a story that revolved around you as the center of the universe? And I don't mean to be mean here, and so just, just hang with me for a second, but, but to be frank, in 200 years, who's going to remember your story? You'll be a footnote at best. I mean, even if you make the highlight reel, right? You might make it to some, you know, B-level website or whatever exists 200 years from now. As, and, and for many of you, maybe as like a negative example, so even that, like, you know, it's tough. Would you rather be a star in a relatively meaningless, insignificant story or a bit part in a grand, wonderful, epoch-shaping story? Whose story are you a part of? What's your story? You see, Nehemiah and the people, they remember how faithful the Lord has been and they position themselves, they recognize that they are positioned inside God's story. Instead of saying, you know, let's build a, a, a tower, let's build, a, a, let's build a, some plaques for ourselves, you know, like we built this city. We built this city on rock and roll, baby. What is this? Jefferson uh, Star Stardust. What is Jefferson, what is it? Jefferson Scottsdale, What? Starship, right. It was airship, and then it was starship. Airplane. Air, dude, listen, who cares? I mean, right, I'm just trying to connect. I'm trying to connect with you, okay? Uh, we built the, I'm just kidding. We built this city, uh, and, and, and they could have made it all about themselves. We did it. We're awesome. We're the center of the story. And here in Nehemiah 9, you have a realignment, a realigning of this people group saying, no, we are not the be-all, end-all. We are simply a part. We're bit players in a grand epic. 
And so what I want to do now is just for our last few minutes together is I would like to remind you. So for those of you that follow after Jesus, I know not all of you do, but for those of you who follow after Jesus, I want you to take seriously this question. uh, What is your story? Is it primarily about you or is it primarily about Jesus? What, what is the life you're living, right? What's the narrative that's guiding your decisions, your responses, your joy, your relationships, your complaints, your protests, your cries of injustice? What story is guiding all of that, your life? What story? What's your story? And what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna take this through the lens of Nehemiah, just as Nehemiah as a launching point. And what I'm going to do is uh, I'm going to ask uh, our booth, to, uh, tech booth, to put up on the screen. This is the, this is the four-part story that God is speaking to us through the universe. That in Genesis 1, we see creation. You see uh, in Nehemiah 6, uh, it's the proclaiming that you are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven and the earth and all that is on it. And that's creation. We see this in Genesis 1 and 2, that God out of nothing creates the heavens and the earth. And in the garden, in that creation, within the garden, God places people made in the image and likeness of God, men and women, male and female, he created them, made in the image and likeness of God, distinct from the animals, not just sacks of chemicals, distinct from the earth, distinct from everything. He made people and he made people as relational beings to be in relationship with him as our creator. And as relational beings, we were in this right relationship with God. And then the people made in the image and likeness of God rebelled. Rebellion is something you'll see all throughout Nehemiah 9. This continual cycle of rebellion. Now, let me put it to you another way. That God has launched this story. And very early on in this story, the people that God created tried to make themselves the center of the story. They didn't like being bit players, which, by the way, is all of our sin. None of us like being bit players. We want to be the center of the universe. We want to be the center of the story. And that's the, that's the default mode of the human heart. It's also the fundamental problem with the human heart is that we are skewed to make everything all about us. And so you have what's called the fall. In light of that cosmic treason and rebellion, There is no more relationship or there is broken relationship between God and his people. And so you have the fall and you have death and you have decay and you have treason and rebellion. But God is not done. In the book of Genesis, very early on, God promises that he will make that which is broken right again, that he will bring to justice all that which is unjust. And just after the fall, he promises something, that that his creation will be redeemed. And so Nehemiah chronicles it for us. In verse seven, he speaks of Abraham or Abram who was called out of Ur the Chaldeans, which is an awful name for a city. Where are you from? Ur. <laughs> right? What's your, what's your basketball team? The Ur Chaldeans. I mean, it's like, oh my gosh, it's worse than Gonzaga. I mean, it's, it's a horrible name. For, right? He calls Abram out of Ur and he establishes a covenant with Abraham. So God very early on, and Abraham is just a guy. He's not a superhero. He's not like, you know, Mr. Awesome religious guy. He's just a dude kicking around from a bad named town, right? And God says, you, Abram, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to make you into a great people. I'm going to make you into a nation so that through you, all the nations will be blessed. This is the story of Abraham. This is the story that continues on because Abram, his family starts to grow and then they're in uh, Egypt as slaves. And you see this in the book of Exodus. And there they grow and they grow and they grow and they become a nation or at least a nation-sized people group. 
but they are enslaved. And so God, through Moses and or Charlton Heston, the jury is still out, leads the people out of, that was, it was a movie, leads the people out of Egypt and into the promised land of which Jerusalem was just a normal city, just kind of kicking around. There's a bunch of people in Jerusalem. And, and so God brings the people in. And you have now in uh, the scriptures, you have this story of the people coming in and developing a kingdom. Because we are going to become a nation that blesses all the nations. Hmm? Because the problem is we got kicked out of the garden because we broke relationship with God. We turned our backs on God. We committed cosmic treason. And so now we're going to deal with the problem by becoming a kingdom. And what you see David do is he says, hey, let's make Jerusalem like a big deal. We'll make it like the capital city. And then you see his son Solomon build a temple in Jerusalem. There you've got a temple. You've got a walled city. You've got the epicenter of this kingdom. And many would say the kingdom of God, or at least the kingdom of God's people. But here's what happens. They've got their kingdom, but the people, just like you and me, have the default mode of their heart take over many times where they become the center of the story. The way that they spoke of it was, God, we rebelled against you. We rebelled against you. We committed treason against you. We made ourselves the center of the universe instead of recognizing that you are the center of the universe. And so you have now God allowing the kingdom to crumble and the walls crumble and the temple crumbles. First, the Babylonians, then the Persians, eventually the Greeks, and eventually the Romans. And so in Nehemiah's time, which is uh, during the Persian occupation, you have a city whose walls are destroyed. Recently, the temple was just rebuilt. And you have the rebuilding of these temple walls. And so Jerusalem becomes a walled city again. But there's still... Uh, being ruled by the Persians. They're eventually going to be ruled by the Greeks and eventually by the Romans. And so here's my question to you. Recognizing that the story of the Bible is in space-time history, Nehemiah happens about 450 BC. And roughly, it's one of the last accounts we have of what happens with God's people before you get to Christmas. So it's kind of like you get the Nehemiah account and then you get another prophet named uh, Malachi who, who says some things. But, and then that's it. It's just quiet. And then you get to Jesus. Right? You get to Christmas. So here's my question to you. In the big story, in the big scheme of things, so what about Nehemiah? Okay, some walls got built. Woo! Like, they're still being ruled by the Persians. The, the human heart is still defaulting to self-adulation, just to, to, to aggrandizing the self. I mean, we haven't fixed the problem. We built a wall around a city. We rebuilt the gates and we rebuilt the temple. Woo! I mean, what, who, like, you might be asking, like, who cares? In fact, you might say that out loud. Who cares? So there's a wall. So what? So if Nehemiah's story is only about himself, it's like you built a wall. Good job. And if Nehemiah is just about us, then Nehemiah is just a good moral tale for us to feel bad that we haven't lived up to his standards. But Nehemiah is pointing to something greater. And here's the deal. And this is my opinion. I'll just give you my opinion. I think that the reason that Nehemiah and those people built that wall is so one day, 400 plus years later, Jesus as a 12-year-old would walk right past him into the temple because Jerusalem still needed to be a city even though it was occupied by the Romans. And Jesus walked into that temple and said, I'm of the business of my father. And then a few years later, Jesus walked into Jerusalem past those walls 
into the temple and proclaim, into that region, proclaiming good news. And then they marched him out of the walls and they crucified him. Why Jerusalem? Why a city? Why walls? Why a temple? Why all of that? It was all to bring us to Jesus. And Jesus walked outside of those, right past those walls that Nehemiah built. As we celebrate, uh, remember, and reflect upon Good Friday coming up here in just a couple weeks, I would encourage you as you think about and as you read through the accounts of Jesus being walked outside of the city, remember that those walls, that's what we're reading about here. That temple was in Ezra. It was rebuilt. But then it was torn down again after Jesus was done, which is fascinating to me. It all shows that the kingdom, the temple, the walls, the political power, the money, the wealth, that's not fixing the problem. The problem is the human heart defaults into itself. And so what we need is a new heart. And so God takes on flesh and they march him outside of the city. They crucify him, they bury him. And three days later, he rises from the grave, conquering over Satan's sin and death. And he proclaims to the world that this is good news because the problem is our broken heart. And he gives to us as we believe in him, as we repent and believe in the gospel, he gives to us a new heart. He realigns the story of our life so that we are not the ultimate end of our own lives, but rather that God is everything, that Christ is the center figure in the story. And this is freeing because we know that we live for something greater than ourselves. What story are you living out? What's your story? Not just what's your story in the pew, but Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. What story are you living out? You see, the story that we find ourselves in will shape our actions, our motives, our emotions, our responses, our complaints, our protests, our joys, and our desires. What's your story? Would you join me as we pray? Lord Jesus, we love you and we give you thanks for the many ways you provide for us. And we're so thankful for your provision uh, over these last few moments of your word, of this facility to meet in, of this time that we have. We know that it is a gift from you and we hope that we have stewarded it well. We pray in the rest of our time, that it would be used for your glory. The decisions we make, the responses that we give, the thoughts that we think, Lord, we pray that your gospel truth, your story would shape it all. Lord, we love you and we give you thanks. We ask that you would convict us of sin, that you would realign our hearts to beat as one with yours, that you would have us to see people as you see them, that we would be agents for love and for grace, for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.